Hello and welcome to our PrepCast, a podcast dedicated to MBA in Master Orientation and Preparation. My name is Nelly and I'm here today with a special guest, Eric Lucrezia, who's had over 20 years experience in education and coaching, working in places like New York, Sydney, Barcelona and Paris. After six years working at Essex Business School as the Director of Recruitment for the Global MBA, Eric founded Candidate Coach, where he works with MBA and Master's candidates helping them uh, to maximize their personal brand and get them into their top target schools. Uh, so hello, Eric. It's a pleasure having you here. I have introduced you shortly, but maybe you can tell us a bit more about your experience and how did you end up working in the field of uh, higher education and more specifically in the field of MBAs? Sure. Hi, Nelly. Thanks for having me today. Uh, yeah, I started working in higher education pretty soon after I finished my undergraduate degree. You know, I, I had done a bachelor's degree in biology and chemistry and thought I was going down the route of medicine originally until I discovered that I really hate blood. And so for me, that was a, a turning point where I realized, okay, I can't, I can't work in healthcare or medicine. I thought about working in education. And so I decided to do my master's degree in education to teach science. And well, as we all know, education in the United States is quite expensive. And so I had an opportunity for a job in the admissions office, which actually got me free tuition for my, for my master's degree. So that was, that was great. That saved me a lot of money. But by doing that job, working as an admissions counselor and recruiter, I discovered the whole world of recruitment and traveling for work. Uh, I got to travel down the whole East Coast of the United States, uh, as well as in the Caribbean, which was really cool. And it sort of awakened my, my taste for travel and international stuff. So I worked for two years in admissions and recruitment, and then another six years at the same school called Long Island University, which is in New York. Um, and there I worked on leadership development, events, uh, student associations, and got into a lot of coaching uh, activities with my students. Um, soon after that, I ended up moving abroad I went on my first trip to Europe in 2007, I think, and I went all over Western Europe and absolutely fell in love with Barcelona. And after a few more trips, soon after I was living in Barcelona, I decided to move there where I was teaching English and coaching Spanish people, Catalans, I should say, on their resumes and preparing for interviews and this kind of stuff. So I ended up spending a year in Spain. Um, then I actually moved to Australia for a year. I spent a year in Sydney and then ultimately settled in Paris, where I am still today here in France. Um, in the beginning, I was teaching English. I didn't really have many connections, much of a network here. But slowly, you start to meet people. And I got back into the world of higher ed again. And my first job here in Paris was at Sciences Po, which is one of the most prestigious institutions here for originally for political science, but they have a lot of other fields of expertise, like their journalism school and consulting and so on, um, international affairs. But um, I was there for two years uh, as the person in charge of international student life. And then I found an opportunity at ESSEC Business School, which is one of the, the top uh, business schools in France. It's one of the Grand École. Grand École is kind of like the French Ivy League system, sort of. So I worked at ESSEC for six years. I was the director of recruitment for the global MBA program at ESSEC uh, up until right around when the pandemic started. 
And that's when I left and founded Candidate Coach, where I work with candidates from all over the world, often applying for MBA programs or master's programs, and kind of accompanying them down their journey of applying, well, researching first, and then applying and getting into the program of their, of their dreams. So that's my story. Wow, sounds amazing. You've had amazing experience so far. Uh, help me understand better the MBA degree, how it's different than similar master programs. What's the biggest advantages here? Okay, first of all, I want to separate an MBA from a master's. I think this is a source of a lot of confusion because an MBA stands for Master's of Business Administration, and that's where people fall into the, the trap of, oh, it's a master's degree, but it's actually not. An MBA is above a master's degree. Now, that doesn't mean that a master's is required to do an MBA. As far as I know, all the schools in the world require just a bachelor's degree. Some people do have a master's, though. I'd say almost half, actually. You know, Over the years that I've been working in recruitment, maybe about half of the people that I've met that apply for MBAs already do have a master's. But it is indeed above. So the defining criteria between a master's and MBA is really about work experience. Pretty much all the MBA programs in the world require a strict minimum of at least three years professional experience, give or take a year, depending on the school, right? Of course, every school has their own criteria, whereas master's degrees you can do straight after undergrad does not require any work experience. Typically speaking, master's students are like 22, 23, 24 when they begin, whereas MBA students, on average, they're actually like 30, 28 to 30 years old is kind of the average. There's certain trends, like if you look at the states, um, and I think it's because American MBAs are usually longer, they're usually two years, whereas in Europe, they're just one year. So in the US, people often start younger. So 28, I think, is the average age in the states, and 30 in Europe, give or take four or five years on both sides of, of the Atlantic. So there's kind of a range uh, of ages that people start an MBA. And again, a master's is really for a younger, less experienced population. So that's the main difference. It kind of comes down to where you are at in your career. Um, both programs, both types of programs can be advantageous, but it really depends on, you know, again, like I said, where you're at at this point in your career um, and what your goals are. Yeah, that's a big difference. Um, and you have uh, worked and talked to many prospective MBA candidates. What is their reason to pursue such a degree? An MBA is considered to be one of the most popular ways of advancing one's career. Is this the main reason? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, well, I think it's all about transformation, right? So whether that transformation or that move is vertical, like somebody who really enjoys the field that they're currently working in and wants to fast track to a high level in that same field. So that kind of vertical transformation, or do they want to transform in terms of um, the career field? Like what industry are they working in? So let's say, for example, they are working in cosmetics and they want to work in automotive. It's a big transformation, but that kind of change in industry or sector or a change in function. So they may be working in a marketing role and they want to work in a finance role or they're working in accounting and they want to do more consulting kind of role. So there's the function role or location, geography. That's another um, popular reason for wanting to, to change. So, you know, changing countries is often a motivation for doing an MBA, especially abroad, right? Choosing an international MBA could be the gateway 
for getting you know a foot in the door into a new country. So to sum it up, it's usually change of sector, change of function, or change of location. Another reason could be entrepreneurship, though. Many times people who either, either already have a small business or they're working in a family business, family company, or they have ideas they want to launch as an entrepreneur, that could be a reason to do an MBA as well. Yeah, so one should really uh, know what they want from life. Um, okay, let's Definitely. get a little bit uh, back in time. Um, when you were a director of recruitment at ESSEC, you must have reviewed hundreds of applications. Um, let's talk a little bit more about what makes a good application. Sure. Actually, you touched on a really important point about knowing what you want in life, or at least in your career. Absolutely. That's, I think, the first most important thing, like understanding you know, who you are and where you're going, what are your goals. You know, when we get an application, um, and you know, that usually includes essays. And if you're shortlisted, you'll have an interview. And that really comes through. Somebody who knows what they want, who has clear um, and realistic goals, that's definitely going to come through in the application and interview processes. And that's the kind of people that business schools are looking for. Also, that there's a, a match between what this person's goals are and what that school has to offer, right? The schools at the end of the day, they're providing a service, a service that is very much implicating the strong participation of the student in the program. It's not like just going to get a massage. It's more like seeing a personal trainer where the student is an active participant in their own development, right? But they wanna make sure that that's, the school wants to make sure that they can deliver on what the goals of that student are. So if not, if this person wants to work and say, I don't know, aviation, and this school has no experience and no connections to the aviation industry, well, it's probably a mismatch. And, you know, it wouldn't be a good fit for that student to be at the school. And to be honest, that should come up first in the student's research, or I should say the candidate's research. You know, they should realize that the school is not a good match for them. If they haven't figured that out on their own, then that would definitely... <laughs> be obvious to the school upon the application and interview process and realize, hey, maybe this is not the right place for you. So it's all about fit. The candidate will be successful at that school for a whole variety of reasons. And that is really what the interview and application process is about, right? The school wants to make sure that this person is gonna be successful and they have the tools and network to make that happen. Uh, yeah, Eric, I've heard you talk about researching and soul searching before. What does this mean? Uh, this is something I like to talk about a lot. I think it is a really key first step in the whole process of, you know, applying for, for not only MBA programs, but really any degree. Um, <laughs> it might sound a little bit funny, but I often find myself saying that, you know, uh, a degree, whether it be an MBA, a PhD, an MPA, whatever, is a vehicle, right? And every vehicle is there to get you to a specific destination. So if you want to go to the moon, don't get in a boat, right? So it's a silly little metaphor, but basically you want to be in the right program to get you to where you want to be. So start thinking about your goals. What is the destination in terms of, again, function, what sector of business you want to work in, um, and where in the world you want to be. And that will help shape you know, where you start looking. Yeah, so researching in terms of like what schools are out there, um, what, you know, by the way, what do you want to earn in life? What salary is acceptable for you? Um, how fast do you want to progress in your career? What industries are growing? 
the most rapidly, which are shrinking perhaps. Cars like uh, gas powered cars is probably something that's gonna be shrinking, but maybe looking into electric or driverless cars um, is, is more of the future. Uh, anything with tech is obviously growing particularly since COVID happened, so many things have moved to an online version and we've become more comfortable with things being online. And really tech is in every single industry, whether it be healthcare, pharmaceuticals, education, finance, whatever. You know, So that's why you also see a boom in what's called STEM MBAs. And if you don't know what that is, STEM MBAs are um, an MBA, or by the way, they exist in the master's level as well, programs that have a focus in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. That's what STEM stands for, um, as you probably know. Um, yeah, so all of this research process, but the soul searching bit is kind of looking inward. What are you good at? What's going to make you happy? What motivates you? All of that kind of stuff. And not only for the career goal, but also looking at the type of programs out there, because every program is different, and every school and every campus has its own culture. So. First of all, looking at yourself in terms of do you thrive in an environment that's more competitive or more collaborative? Do you prefer larger cohorts or a really small group where you might get more personal attention? Is it really important to you to be surrounded by a lot of diversity or not? What is the minimum like percentage of females in a program that would be acceptable to you, whether you're a man or a woman or something in between? Um, you know, so all of these kind of like personal or internal questions are things you want to think about and going through that process of researching and soul searching should result in you finding the schools that are the best fit for you and helping you narrow down to just a handful of schools that you actually apply to. Maybe like three to five, max six is like a healthy number of schools, I would say. And that's because, you know, actually going through the, the process of applying is time consuming and it can be expensive because there are often application fees for all of these schools. You need to write essays for each and they're probably going to be different questions asked by each school, preparing interviews for each. I mean, it's exhausting while you are preparing the GMAT, which is hugely time consuming, working full time and having other responsibilities and a social life. You know, it's a lot. So you want to front load all of the research to narrow down to just a handful of schools that you know are all really a good fit for you. And then you do your best in your application and hopefully you get into all of them. And then you have your choice of which one at the end uh, that you will ultimately decide to go to. This is some uh, great advice you're giving us here and researching and soul searching. I think this is something that you have also talked in your, in your books. Uh, you have written a series of books aiming to help uh, prospective MBA candidates. You have written uh, getting into MBA in the UK and getting into MBA in France. Uh, before talking about, uh, about um, the books a little bit more, I'm curious, how come you decided to write a book? Uh, good question. Well, you know, originally the book idea was just going to be one before it developed into a series. And as I thought about what I wanted to talk about in my book, I realized I didn't want to just leave it at you know, the interview and as, as the last bit of advice, right? I wanted to do a guidebook that would help people go through the process of really A to Z, everything you need to know and do to get into your MBA program. And that, you know, again, front loading the research, going back into the, you know, researching and soul searching process, but taking you not only to the point where you interview, 
But then the steps like applying for scholarships, getting your visa. And then I was like, well, hang on, people really need advice about like moving over and getting started. So I started thinking about things like, you know, getting around and arriving, finding an apartment, opening a bank account in this new country that you don't know yet. Um, things like getting, <clears throat> getting a, a mobile phone plan or a gym membership, staying in health and uh, staying healthy and in shape, um, which is you know part of a good balance while you're studying for an MBA. And you know a little bit about the culture where you're going to be. And pretty soon I realized that this cannot be just one book, that this really needs to be a series of guidebooks that are country specific. I kind of think about it as like Lonely Planet or Routard. This is like a French version of Lonely Planet, like travel guides, but for MBA programs, right? So that's kind of how that developed. In terms of like the contents of the book, I developed this knowledge base, let's call it, over the years working in recruitment. And not just from my own personal, personal experiences, but having like hundreds and hundreds of conversations with other recruiters, right? I, over the years, have gotten to know very well my fellow recruiters at various schools, not only in France, but all over the world, as we very often travel together. You know, we do the events, but often we, as we would travel, as you know, working at Access MBA, that there are a series of events that we do in a row. So we might share flights, we end up, you know, um, in the same hotel or restaurant, so we share meals and getting to know the programs and the kind of advice they would give to their uh, candidates, but also serving on panels. I can't tell you how many times I've served on and moderated panels at these MBA fairs and getting to hear my colleagues from other schools and other countries speak about what they expect, um, you know, just advice across the board, everything from resume to interview prep to essays, GMAT and so on, that it really shaped and um, informed me what my understanding is important and how to be successful in researching for applying to and getting into MBA programs around the world. So that was a big part of what developed my own knowledge. And I was like, I really want to put this into a book. And I decided to partner with a lot of my colleagues who have become very good friends of mine all around the world working at different MBA programs in a host of countries. So each book, it's not just me, um, it's in partnership with people who are locally based, who give further insight, especially when it comes down to things like visa and mobile phone plans and finding a good gym membership, all that kind of stuff. So that's really what it's all about. Uh, okay, and why UK and France exactly? What's your connection to these countries? Well, as I said earlier, I have lived in Paris now for a while. It's been it's been over 11 years. Um, so I know France for sure the best, even though I am American and have worked in education in the States for eight, nine years. Um, I've been in France for the last 11 and I know education very well here. So this was a natural starting point for me. It's the country in terms of MBA programs that I know the best. And I live here and it's very easy for me to to speak about this uh, specific market and how things are here. In terms of the UK, why did I choose to do that next? First of all, it's geographically very close. Second of all, uh, after the States, it's the country with the most number of top ranked MBA programs where I have a lot of colleagues and friends working and know many alumni. I've been to the UK many times 
And it's more manageable to write about when compared to the United States. So I wanted to do the UK next, but that's not the end point. Actually, the third book in the series is coming out at the end of this month, October, 2021, um, about the US. And so because it's such a huge country, there's a lot more research that goes into it. And I have several uh, contributing editors that are helping gather information and helping to assemble this, this third book in the series. And soon after that will be followed by getting into NMB in Canada. The fifth will be Spain. And there's a few other countries that are on the list that will be targeted for uh, additional books in the series, specifically Germany, Switzerland, Singapore, Australia, China, Italy, and Denmark, and Belgium. That's the list I have in mind at the moment. That we're well, on. you'll have a lot of work then. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of work to do, yep. But it's exciting. And, you know, for example, just this morning, I heard from my graphic designer who, who, who designs the cover. Uh, his name is Chris Evans. He's super talented, and I love his work in general. I was introduced to him about a year ago from a mutual friend, and you can find him on Instagram. I mean, he's he's really great. He has a his own style, which he calls digital woodcut, and it kind of looks like, um, you know, you look at like money, like bills, and you can see like the style that the heads of you know, famous dead people that are on our on our money in many countries, that, that style that makes it look a little bit three-dimensional. So he's done that on the computer. And so that's why it's digital. And the original style is called woodcut because back in the day, they would literally cut and carve pieces of wood and like roll ink onto it and stamp. That's how they printed money and a lot of things. So his style is pretty unique. And yeah, I heard from him this morning that he's almost done with the cover for the getting into an MBA in the USA book. So I'm really excited. I'll be wrapping up the content with my partners in the next week or so and should be available on Amazon by the end of the month. That's great. I uh, wish you luck. But before closing uh, on your books, I want to talk a little bit more about the content. Uh, because I read something really interesting in one of the chapters, you talk about entrepreneurships. Uh, since many people sign up for an MBA in, one, uh, in order to start their own business, as you said earlier, and you pose the question, can entrepreneurship even be taught in a classroom, especially in a program focused on making a leader in the corporate world, uh, which MBA is? So what can an MBA offer to the entrepreneurs? It's a very good question and often a hotly debated topic, but you know, over the years while I was working at Essex Business School here in Paris, I got to know some of the professors in entrepreneurship and really pick their brains and understand what do they teach exactly and what are the results and what do they think about teaching entrepreneurship during an MBA or even a master's program. And if I could sum it up, what an uh, entrepreneurship classes or uh, even a major in entrepreneurship uh, teaches you, it's failing efficiently, or some people say fast fail, fail fast. Um, basically what that means is when you try something new, inevitably it will fail, but the concept that you can learn from it, pick yourself up again and, you know, adjust, make some, you know, shifts or in your model and try again is the point. And as an entrepreneur, most of the time, most, in most cases, you will fail and try again, fail and try again, scores of times many, many times before you get it right, before it works. And that's really, really hard. You know, you can't forget that we're all human. And, you know, when you launch 
you know, normally when you when you launch a company, an entrepreneurial project, you've put your heart and soul into it. You've done a lot of research. You've talked to a lot of people. You've put your own money or got investors behind you, and you really hope that this baby you've made is going to going to flourish and work. But it's not always the case, <laughs> and you may, you know, get no business from it. It may fall flat on its face. Maybe nobody's interested in it, um, or maybe there's a huge mistake that actually causes you know, a negative reaction to it, you know, and then the capacity to say, okay, that didn't work, but, you know, looking at the detail, what about it didn't work? So having that, like, wisdom to pick apart which parts didn't work to make, you know, the necessary adjustments and to launch again, that takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of human character and tenacity to be able to do that because it's, it's tiring after you've put so much of your heart and soul into something to, you know, take that punch in the stomach, like, nope, failure, rejection, and to pick yourself up and try again. So that is like one huge piece that I think, you know, becoming an entrepreneur is important to learn and understand. The other thing is that they teach you some really practical things, like how to write a business plan, how to go about approaching investors. Um, the MBA, of course, in itself provides you with a huge network. You know, um, if you're looking at any of the top MBA programs and, for example, the Financial Times rankings, any of those 100 schools on the list every year will have a huge, powerful global network that you should be able to tap into to get resources, to potentially find people who would like to invest in your project, and at a minimum, getting the word out about your new entrepreneurial project. So there's a lot that teaching or studying, I should say, entrepreneurship during your MBA can do for you in terms of developing you as somebody who can be successful. Okay, in your books, you also talk about online MBAs. I think this option is now more popular after the coronavirus uh, hit the world. What are the advantages and disadvantages of doing an online MBA, in your opinion? Sure, yes, that's also another hotly debated topic, whether an online MBA could be as good as an in-person one. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, if you can have an experience that is in-person, face-to-face, in reality, there's nothing better than that. But there are some situations where an online MBA could be helpful or even necessary. For example, for some people, you know, they want to do an, uh, an MBA in, abroad, but they don't have the ability to travel at that point. Um, whether it be because they have a job, they have children, they're taking care of you know, parents, um, whatever, financial reasons. And now, as you said, since COVID, I mean, the online version has become widespread. During the peak of COVID last year, very few schools continued to teach in person. Um, very few schools had come up with strategies to make that possible and safe. So yeah, we were forced to go online. And since then, I think a lot of people have shifted their perspective in terms of actually this can work and, you know, we can deliver a real and effective MBA program with an online model. A lot of schools have something that's called like a hybrid model where they'll, where they will um, do some classes online and some things in person, or maybe the actual classes are all online, but they set up in-person like coffee chats to connect students with each other and have those interactions to work in small groups. Again, particularly because of COVID where it's safer in smaller numbers um, to, to have some of that in-person interaction or connecting with alumni as well. You know, developing those human relationships are really 
the core of developing your network, right? A network is only as strong as the relationships within it. So schools have come up with creative solutions to be online, but also have some in-person interactions to develop that all-important network. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about uh, your experience now. Uh, you're running your own consultancy called uh, Candidate Coach. You mentioned it uh, earlier. In your coach MBA experience uh, from all over the world, what is the most difficult uh, thing in this line of work and what brings you the most joy? Hmm. Yeah, that's true. So uh, with Candidate Coach, I do work with applicants all over the world. For example, I was just contacted by somebody from Denver, Colorado, who is looking at various master's programs, uh, mostly in Europe. And so we had a conversation a couple of days ago to, you know, for him to explain to me, you know, what exactly his goals are, what he's looking for, what he's looking for in a coach. And for me to explain my process and my approach to helping people to, again, go through the research and soul searching process, to really come up with a story that they're going to tell over and over again through their CV, through their essays, through their interview, uh, and other interactions as well, um, and to get them into their choice schools. Um, and I was happy to read yesterday an email from him that he decided to go ahead with me. So, you know, that process, first of all, I guess, as you said, brings joy, but even more so developing a relationship with my, with my clients and seeing them kind of have those aha moments where they realize their worth and how they know they can communicate their worth to those schools to get them in. But it's also much more than the schools themselves. Like they come to me to help them to get into the business schools or the programs of their choice. But it's also much more than that, right? Because when people do a degree, it's because they're looking for another job a better job after that for a career trajectory that's going to bring them, you know, their own joy and, you know, salary, of course, and so on. So, you know, helping them to connect the dots between where they are today and where they want to be, that is a big source of joy for me. Sounds right, like really a fulfilling job. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, and getting into your, your dream MBA program is something wonderful. Uh, but there are also a lot of applicants who get rejected. So as final words of advice here, what would you say to them? Yeah, of course, receiving a no, a rejection letter from a school can be really disappointing, especially after you've, you know, worked so hard to, to, to apply and, and you hope that it, it's going to go well. But not everyone can get in. Obviously, there's certainly more applicants, especially, you know, the more prestigious, uh, the higher ranked schools to get a lot of applicants, they just can't accept everyone. So I think the first thing to do is don't lose heart. Second of all, maybe you can contact the recruiter that you've been working with. Usually you're in touch with a recruiter throughout your process to ask questions and you know, as you get to know the school and they get to know you, ask them, say, hey, I got the letter. Unfortunately, I was not admitted this time around. Um, would it be possible to get some feedback as to why I was not admitted this time? And very often the recruiters would be happy to give you whatever insights they have, if they can, to tell you, you know, oh, it was about the GMAT score or, you know, um, your references weren't that great, or, you know, maybe your interview could have been better, 
and so on. So it could be a variety of reasons. It could be simply that there was a huge number of applicants this year. And with that huge influx, they just could not take everyone. It was really high competition this year. And unfortunately, you know, you were one of the ones that didn't make it. And so they may encourage you to apply next year. Now that also depends on your, you know, your level of experience and your age at this point. As I said, there is, you know, I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast that there is a sort of age and uh, age range and experience level. So if you're kind of at the high end and you don't get in, you may age out, let's say, of a full-time MBA program. But what you might look at instead is pivoting to applying for an executive MBA program. That would be more in alignment with where you are in your career and what your goals are. So that's one thing. But if you're not like, you know, becoming too experienced for a full-time MBA, you know, why not apply the next year? You absolutely could. And given the suggestions from the recruiter, hopefully you can improve things. A lot of times it is the GMAT score. That is a thing that's holding them back. But to be honest, I have worked with a number of clients who come to me after having been rejected from their top schools the previous year to analyze their application and you know tease it apart and see what could be improved, what maybe didn't work last year and how they could um, be more successful this year. And we've had great results. Thank you for this encouraging words, Eric. Uh, and thank you You're for welcome. being with us here today and sharing your experience and wisdom. Uh, for everyone who is listening, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Bye. Thanks, Millie. Bye-bye.